Contents Cover and Images Written by Catherine Chatsky Read by Georgia Sagri All the Little Flowers by Theodore Adorno Read and Interpreted by Brian Clifton Interview Elizabeth Gross in Conversation with Catherine Chatsky Time Travels Feminism, Nature, Power Elizabeth Gross reads an excerpt from Time Travels, Feminism, Nature, Power. Chapter 11, The Force of Sexual Difference. Conducted at the Gender Studies Department of Rutgers University. Essay, Part 2. Thomas Jefferson's Society of Friends, The Impact of Epistolary Commissionship on Notes on the State of Virginia and the Corpse of Discovery. Written and read by Sarah Jetschik at the Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, hidden in the side stairwell of the building. Review How many ways to cover and slaughter? Written and read by Cara Benedetto. Essay Sarah Jetschik Courses of Astral Projection Interview by Thomas Torres Cordova Conducted at Newark International Airport. Horoscope. A Chinese New Year for the Animal Kingdom. Written and read by Jennifer Pietschko. 90 Seconds by Lev Kalman and Whithorn. Cover. Time. Please slow down. You are going too fast. It's only accumulation after all. Part 1. Dictionary of Words and Phrases, 1941. Entry on Space in General. 180 Indefinite Space, Space, Extension, Extent, Superficial Extent, Expanse, Stretch, Capacity, Room, Accommodation, Scope, Range, Latitude, Field, Way, Expansion, Compass, Sweep, Play, Swing, Spread, Open, Free, Space, Wide Open Spaces, Void, End, C. Absence, waste, wild, wilderness, up, bottom, moor, land, campagna, veld, prairie, steppe, abyss, and sea, unlimited space, infinity, and sea, world, wide world, ubiquity, and sea, presence, length, and breadth of the land, extensively, and sea, wherever, everywhere, far and near, wide, right and left, all over, all the world over, throughout the world, length and breadth of the land, under the sun, in every quarter, in all quarters, lands, here, there and everywhere, from pole to pole, down to Perceba. End to end, on the face of the earth, in the wide world from all points of the compass, to the four winds, Outermost parts of the earth. All the Little Flowers by Theodore Adorno. The, the pronouncement, probably by Jean Paul, that the memories are the, the only possessions which no one can take from us, belongs in the storehouse of infinitely sentimental consolations that the subject, resignedly withdrawing into inwardness, would like to believe that the very fulfillment that he has given up. In setting up his own archives, the subject seizes his own stack of experience as property so making it somewhat something wholly external to himself. Past inner life is turned into furniture just as, conversely, ever pre-admired pieces memory made of wood. 
The interior where the soul accommodates its collection of memoirs and curios is derelict. Memories cannot be conserved in drawers and in pigeonholes, and then the past is indissolubly woven into the present. No one has at the their disposal in the free and voluntary way that is prayed by Jean-Paul's fulsome sentences. Precisely where they become controllable and objectified, where the subject believes himself entirely sure of them, memories fade like delicate wallpapers in bright sunlight. But where, protected by oblivion, they keep their strength, they are in danger like all that is alive. This is why Bergson and Post's conception intend to combat reification, that the present immediacy is constituted only through the mediation of memory, is not only a redeeming, but an infernal aspect. Just as no earlier experiences real that has not been loosed by involuntary remembrance from the deathly fixity of its isolated existence, so conversely, no memory is guaranteed existent in itself and different to the future of him who harbors it. Nothing passes proof through its translation to mere imagination against the curse of the empirical present. The most blissful memory of a person can be revoked in its very substance by later experience. He who has loved and betrays love does harm not only to the image of the past, but to the past itself. Irresistibly evident, an impatient movement while waking up, a distraught tone of voice, a faint hypocrisy and pleasure, obtrudes itself in the memory and turns the earlier closeness even then into the distance that distance become. Despair has the accent of irrevocability, not because things cannot improve, but because it draws the past too into its vortex. Therefore, it is foolish and somehow to try to keep the past untainted by the presence of children of blood. No other hope is left in the past than that, exposed defenselessly to disaster, it shall emerge from it as something different. But he who dies in despair has lived his whole life in vain. The hunting. The deep desert encompasses all memories. In this collision, a vibrating mass of happy chaos. It feels new yet hot and orange all the same. This upholstery is faded, this floor is cracking, this record is skipping and scratched, but the outside is cool and blue. The walls, the walls are concrete and the sound is coming from the ether. So we'll start with time as a positive accumulation instead of a negative erosion. Yes. Um, one of the things I think that characterizes life as opposed to matter, is that life accumulates a past and carries its past with it. And what's interesting about this is that the past doesn't wear away, the past doesn't get dimmer and dimmer, the past snowballs mm -hmm. as time goes on. So the longer you live, the more of a past you accumulate, and the more that past informs your present and enables the possibility of a future. So this movement of time for anything that's alive, but also I think for physical systems in their totality, um, it means that we always have a past. We always bring a past that isn't just our personal past, but is the past of everything that precedes us that also has a past. In other words, this time, this form of time, is our continuity with everything that's alive. So for example, in our own past, we have not only everything that happened since the moment I was born, we have everything that is relevant to me insofar as I'm me, 
that happens long before I'm born. The birth of my parents, the birth of their parents, the birth of the nation from which they come, mm -hmm. the birth of uh, human beings out of animal beings. So although I can't personally remember this past, nonetheless it's accumulated literally in my body, in the genes that I carry with me, in the habits and mechanisms that I bring with me that have accumulated through something like evolution. So I have two kinds of pasts, a past I can remember, a past that's actively mine, but also a past that I'm not aware of consciously, but that links me to every other living thing and that makes me part of the earth. That's actually a great segue into um, another prompt I had, which was how feminism can borrow from metaphysics, how we can project a positive future. Okay, look, I think in a way this is the central question of radical politics, of all radical politics, mm -hmm. and that is given that the past is pretty lousy yeah. and the present is intensely depressing, how is it that we bring about a future that is somehow different from these two? Mm -hmm. And I think the only answer is to activate something untimely, that is something out of the past mm -hmm. that hasn't really been used up in the present. Um, philosophers often call this the virtual. Mm -hmm. um, another concept that is linked to it is the concept of potential or possibility. So we need to have a hope that in the present there's the possibility of the future being different. But the present faces us as this weight of givenness. Okay? Mm. We just, the present just is. And whatever we might have done in the past to make the present, once it's present, it's given. So we need something to pry loose the depressing weight of the present. And the only thing we have accessible to us, given that the future doesn't exist yet, is the untimely past. So politics, I think all of politics, all of radical politics, is a reactivation of this untimely past that hasn't been used up in an attempt to provide um, not a clear picture of a future, because I don't believe such a thing is possible, but at least a trajectory that allows us to fracture the present so that we might open up the future. So the past offers us what's untimely, like what's out of time, what's in the wrong time, what hasn't had its time yet. And that is the hope, not only of politics, but also of art. Yes. Art is a, an attempt to mobilize the past in a new way. What you were just saying reminded me of a, a great quote, uh, Derrida, that you had in your book, um, which maybe I'll just read it and we can yes. sort of go from there as well. The undecidable remains caught, lodged, at least as a ghost, but an essential ghost. In every decision, in every event of decision, its ghostliness deconstructs from within any assurance of presence, any certitude or any supposed criteriology that would assure us of the justice of a decision, in truth, the very event of a decision. Well, the thing about a ghost is that the reason there's a ghost mm -hmm. is that there's a crime in the past that hasn't been adequately expiated. A ghost is this leftover partial presence. It's not a full presence, otherwise it'd be a person. Mm -hmm. So it's a trace of something that wasn't properly resolved at mm -hmm. the time it had its moment. Now, we all know the story of Hamlet, mm -hmm. and basically Hamlet Sr., you know, Hamlet's father, demands of Hamlet that he correct the sin of Hamlet Sr.'s murder. Um, so there's something left undone. And it's something about the past 
that can't let the present just stay in the present. So the ghost is in a way the summoning of something that needs to be done in the future that was left over from the past. And in a way we are all kind of Hamlets. Mm -hmm. Politics is us straddling the question of this ghost. So another thing we can talk about is uh, time and space as gendered concepts. Yes. You say Irigaray affirms that the question of time and of conceptualizing women's closer alignment with temporality is crucial to the struggles of sexual difference. Insofar as the feminine has remained largely associated with space, place, containment, and habitation. Yes, I mean, what Irigaray is saying I think is very brilliant, um, as everything she says is. And what she's saying um, is basically that in the history of Western thought, and particularly in the history of Western philosophy, which has structured itself according to binary pairs or opposites, mm -hmm. um, one being the negative version of the other, women have always been associated with a series of terms that link them to materiality, objects, passion, nature, and space. Um, all of these concepts are aligned, and um, they are, in a way, the negative versions of positive terms that are linked to mind, reason, culture, and time. Um, Irigaray is not talking about thought in general. She's talking about specific texts in the history of Western philosophy. And when she's thinking about space and time, she's referring to the work of Kant. Mm -hmm. And Kant's writing like, quite clearly says that space is the sense of outer apprehension, mm -hmm. and time is a mode of inner apprehension. So space, if you like, is directed out. It's what we impose on the world. Yeah, architectural. It's what we build out, right? The well, project. it's what we impose in order mm -hmm. to make the outside coherent, whereas mm -hmm. time is what we impose on the lived, the experienced, to make it coherent. Mm -hmm. So each are forms of internal and external ordering. And Irigaray takes this clue of the internal-external opposition as a, as a way of understanding the way the feminine has been sort of denigrated mm -hmm. in Western thought. Mm -hmm. So the feminine is aligned with space because space is outside the subject, space is the medium of objects, space is that which mind can manipulate in particular kinds of ways, architecturally, in terms of engineering, mm -hmm. in terms of geometry, and so on. So through not only Kant, but through a history of philosophy that has objectified woman basically and rendered man the ideal of subject, time has become the sense of a subject and only a man can be a subject, mm -hmm. whereas space is, if you like, the plan of an object. Now, Irigaray's claim is not that we need to reverse this because to reverse it would be just as problematic. Mm -hmm. Her argument is that we need to duplicate each of these terms so that there's not just one model of space and its counterpart is a particular model of time. She wants to suggest something like that there must always be at least two. Mm -hmm. There are at least two models of how space is lived and how time is lived. There may be many more than two, but there are at least two, only one of which has been represented in patriarchal mm -hmm. thought. So the possibility of another conception of space and time, the possibility of another way ex of experiencing temporality exists. Um, Irigaray's work, a lot of it, I think, is an attempt to explore what this possibility might entail, given that at the moment it's only a possible and not an actual. So we have 
the possibility of thinking of both space and time utterly differently than the ways that we have. Mm -hmm. And the ways that we have are really embedded most directly in science. Mm -hmm. But Irigaray wants to suggest something like, not only do the arts address these terms differently, but science itself could do so differently. So there's the possibility of at least two different kinds of models, at least two different kinds of science, at least two different kinds of arts. Um, it's very exciting, I think, her work. Um, I think what Eregray is saying is we all have a temporality that links us to a past, mm-hmm. but masculinity is based, Western masculinity is based on a disavowal of the mm-hmm. debt that that history entails. Mm-hmm. We come from somewhere and we can't repay the process by which we come from there. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a way we can't adequately acknowledge it and part of masculinity, Western masculinity, is to deny that connection, to Mm -hmm. deny that there is a backward debt and to suggest that there's only a kind of forward debt. Mm. So a lot of Irigaray's project, yeah. Yeah, but a lot of Irigaray's work is about reclaiming this past that has been cut off from us. I think is very, very important in feminist struggles. Uh, not only the past of my family and in my particular family life, um, but a lineage that goes all the way back to the beginning of humanity itself. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is something here. It is an event yet to occur, an event strangely out of time, for it does not yet have a time, and its time may never come. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, this is sexual difference. Yeah. Exactly. This is the quote that really stuck with me, was, um, we need to accommodate things more than they accommodate us. Life is the growing accommodation of matter, the adaptation of the needs of life to the exigencies of matter. Yeah, look, we tend to think that objects are for us. Um, This is part of the way in which capitalism has allowed itself to exploit the earth, that the tree is there for us to chop down and make wooden objects out of. What's really interesting about thinking about the work of Darwin and so on through a kind of political filter is that in some sense we've already accommodated the tree into our very biology. And so in some sense we are the response to an environment that pre-exists us Mm -hmm. and that we have no choice but to live within to the extent that it sets the goals that allow us to live. So I have this delusion that I'm the master of the tree Mm-hmm. And this is a delusion that not only do we in capitalism share, but I think at the moment human beings across the globe share, mm-hmm. which is we might make a mess, but like sooner or later we'll have the resources if we get our act together through climate change and the rest to clean it up. Mm-hmm. It's the same delusion that got us into the mess in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that is that we think we're the masters of matter and matter is there at our disposal for us to make use of as we will. This is the godlike fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, But in fact, we are the objects that matter has formulated in order that matter perpetuate itself and develop itself into a future. Mm -hmm. We are products of matter rather than matter being products that we generate. Mm -hmm. And look, I'm not really an ecologist, I'm not really an eco-feminist. So what I'm not really interested in is an idea that we're beholden to the whole earth as a totality. But what I do think is that we have specific organs that have responded precisely to the Mm -hmm. environments that have sustained us Mm -hmm. and that we are built from these material resources. So they can't be objects for us because it's through these objects that we are. Mm -hmm. We are the humans that we are. So we need 
a much less practical relation to objects in the world, to things. Um, we need less of a sense of control, less of a sense of the right to change the structure of objects, and more of an understanding that the repercussions of these changes are not within our control. So we think we can fix things, but in fact in the process of fixing things we transform them even more. Mm -hmm. um, that's what both worries me and is the provocation that both science and art want to extract from us. Mm -hmm. Like how to live well without destroying what we're living with. A woman holds her corner in time. The spectre procreates. Each object is defined light. Everything is as clear as if the light knows it is supposed to be the ocean. A planetary organism of time, a locus with lacuna. Defined light will make the object translucent, the time elusive, sifting. Okay, um, this is really off the top of my head from The Force of Sexual Difference, which is one. chapter 11. Uh, it's 171. Oh, yes. Uh, let me just read this opening paragraph. Great. It is time to rethink some of the key questions that have occupied feminist, queer and postmodern theories of subjectivity, identity and gender. Indeed, I believe it is time to move beyond the very language of identity and gender, to look at other issues left untouched, questions unasked, assumptions unelaborated, which feminist and queer politics need to address in order to revitalize themselves and to propel themselves into new conceptions of desire, power and pleasure, and into the development of new practices. Among these underdeveloped and unasked questions are those deemed the most offensive and disputed within the last decades. Not the body, which of course is now the most valorized and magical of conceptual terms within the social sciences and the humanities, but messy biology, matter, materiality, which have had to be organized and contained as body and dematerialized through language. Not ideology, which continues to, uh, to be privileged as the object of intellectual analyses of power, but instead force, energy, affect, which are today rarely discussed, but relegated to abjection and to the outside position of the real. And not gender, which again is the contained, represented, socialized ideal, but sexual difference, that untidy, ambiguous invocation of the pre-structuring of being by irreducible difference. Matter, force and difference remain elided in most common forms of contemporary political discourse and theoretical analysis. They remain too destabilizing, too difficult to direct into concerted political pathways to provide the basis of a new politics. Yet matter, force and difference, or matter as force and difference, remain the prerogatives of science and are either treated fearfully and with distrust or ignored altogether in the humanities and social sciences. I'm going to stop there. That was just a little wetting of the appetite. That, that was really fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Anytime. So I do have to record five seconds of silence okay. at the end here, so I'll just count down. In Tales of Love, Julia Kristeva titles her paragraph, 
an affliction, a word, a letter. With this paper, call across the distance. It will go from hand to hand. This material property inherits a trace from all who touch it. It is absorbing us. This letter, it captures our dust, all matter transmitting it by symbols, living in a time capsule. Coming back to bother descendants, it disintegrates and ripples across the continuum. Through continued letters and subsequent drafts throughout 1782, Jefferson's answers developed their title, Notes on the State of Virginia, and he began to consider publishing his responses and to imagine the book's potential audience. His trip to France in 1785 provided him with an opportunity to take advantage of lower printing prices, but Jefferson had one remaining reservation about publishing his book. His response to Morbois' queries regarding, quote, the particular customs and manners that may happen to be received in that state, while Jefferson's other responses were, according to his own standards, unwaveringly deduced from his own observations and knowledge, his responses to this query were rather more prescriptive. He began his response by admitting the difficulty inherent in assessing the manners and habits of one's own country, yet he attempted to distance himself and observe his own society nonetheless. What he saw was the ubiquitous and abhorrent practice of slavery. That Jefferson situated such a condemnation within a book that expressed so fully the landscape and natural history of his own homeland was a snag in the otherwise fluvial movement of the book, which, even in its extensive lists and rather over-detailed presentations of Virginia's characteristics, still exhibited the flow of consistent care and attention. It was this passage that made him most apprehensive, a fact that he acknowledged in letters to friends. To James Monroe, he explained the reason for his concern. I fear the terms in which I speak of slavery and of our Constitution may produce an irritation which will revolt the minds of our countrymen against reformation in these two articles. Jefferson might have included this passage, despite his concerns, because he had created an ideal forum to test even the most controversial ideas, and he was eager to receive commentary from a group of men that included both scientists and politicians whom he respected. Moreover, because the passage induced a response, it was guaranteed to continue another round of thoughtful letters addressed to Jefferson. Perhaps most importantly, though, the exchange of letters within the society also allowed Jefferson to develop his skill as a scientific observer, and in doing so, to perfect his book for a new prospect. When Thompson outlined the interests of the Philosophical Society, he reminded Jefferson of the Society's standards for contributions, which included the formal examination of the new world from a philosophical perspective. As Jefferson applied this perspective of distance and analytic observation, not to a part of the new world that was entirely foreign, but to his familiar Virginia, it was impossible for him to ignore the prevalence and contradiction of slavery in his own society. It was, then, this scientific influence that convinced Jefferson to include such scathing social analysis in a book that was initially a more objective description of Virginia. Thus, in his attempt to distance himself from his own society, he gained the ability to diagnose its major social and moral dysfunction. Whether this diagnosis was useful differed among members of Jefferson's scientific society and his contemporaries in politics. 
Jefferson's desire to appeal to the Philosophical Society, perhaps more so than to his fellow politicians, allowed him to suggest that the responsibility of eradicating slavery was in the hands of future philosophers rather than current politicians. This was undoubtedly convenient for Jefferson, who was a slaveholding politician. Yet, his inclusion of slavery in this description of Virginia enriched Marbois' already diverse survey to the point that it could become profoundly influential to future readers. And it was his ongoing correspondence that helped him produce such a rigorous study that, even in its contradictions, was nonetheless commendably thorough. Through his new awareness of the book's value as a scientific document, Jefferson explored the possibilities of appealing to an audience of learners and observers. He wrote to Chastelieu that he intended to distribute his book to students at the College of William and Mary. Of those young men, he wrote, it is to them I look, to the rising generation, and not to the one now in power for these great reformations. Jefferson's focus on the younger generation indicated his passion to present and collect information not just for the benefit of his friendly and responsive contemporaries, but also for the yet-to-be-created statesman-scientist, who Jefferson imagined would be the ideal figure to learn from and act on the sorts of information contained within Notes on the State of Virginia. The next generation of learners and observers included Jefferson's personal secretary, Meriwether Lewis, who served Jefferson during his first presidential term. Jefferson did not keep the rather melancholic promise he made in 1781 to remain at Monticello and to avoid involvement with politics and in 1801 he was inaugurated as the third president of the United States. It was not until 1803, however, that he propositioned Congress to fund an expedition to the Pacific coast, which provided him another occasion to re-engage with the sort of scientific society that he had created two decades earlier. For the planning of the Corps of Discovery, Jefferson consulted a different collection of men and was this time more familiar with the interests of the Philosophical Society and more willing to capitalize on the skill of experts in varied fields of scientific research. He also put to use the goals he had recognized through his correspondence on notes on the state of Virginia, which centered on his interest in fostering synergy through the combination of diverse subjects. The diversity of knowledge included in Notes on the State of Virginia was an excellent basis for the sort of leader Jefferson envisioned for the Corps of Discovery. He asked Lewis to serve as captain of the expedition because his military experience had prepared him to lead a group of men on a long and challenging journey and to survive in the wilderness. Also, Jefferson knew that Lewis was interested in Western exploration because he had asked to be included in the expedition 10 years earlier, when he was only 18, which Jefferson organized through the Philosophical Society in 1793. Jefferson declined Lewis's offer because of his age, and this was certainly to Lewis's benefit, as that expedition traveled only as far as St. Louis, where the leader, French botanist André Michaud, dedicated himself instead to raising support for a French takeover of Louisiana, which was then owned by Spain. Jefferson's specific instructions to Lewis in 1803 outlined his foremost purpose as to explore the Missouri River and such principal stream of it as, by its course in communication with the waters of the Pacific Ocean, may offer the most direct and practicable water communication across this continent. He also stated that Lewis was responsible for celestial observations, noting the agricultural potential of the land, recording the climate, the plants and animals, recording the minerals, representing the United States to native tribes he encountered, selecting the members of his expedition, and overseeing the overall safety and health of his chosen members. In other words, Jefferson expected a great deal from Lewis. 
When he began to make arrangements for Lewis's training, he acknowledged his skills, yet still wrote, We cannot in the U.S. find a person who to courage, prudence, habits, and health adapted to the woods, and some familiarity with the Indian character, joins a perfect knowledge of botany, natural history, mineralogy, and astronomy, all of which would be desirable. Jefferson hoped for a true protege, one who had read notes on the state of Virginia as a college textbook, mastered all of its subjects, and interpreted its subtle implications as Jefferson had intended. Lewis was, by Jefferson's description, essentially half qualified when Jefferson selected him as captain. This, in itself, was an impressive level of qualification. But to Jefferson, he was an unfinished project. He needed to ensure that Lewis became a leader whose skill in the public and communicative manners of diplomacy, as well as in the measured and analytical habits of scientific observation, were equally matched. As Jefferson had noticed through his own research, it was this balance that yielded the most profuse results. I am a cave woman. I am a neolith. With this projection we can see into the dark heat of space. We are medieval sovereign, one point expanding. A form flickers on edge watching the point, assessing its descent. Text. I haven't texted anyone for over an hour and I'm so bored I think I might be dead. This is a slight memory of him belonging to the Catwalk Resident, a survivor's review of Suicide Bridge. Rip Van Winkles fell asleep here between the jump and the water. He landed on his legs and decided to sleep like dormant trees between a rocky bottom and a fisherman's lining. Waiting for his lethargy to outlive his nasty wife, Rip gave me a sleepwalking tour of the path he made through the base of the Catskill Mountains. As we walked, he smoothly adjusted twigs so they wouldn't deter their softness on my scarred ankles. Morphing sentries, he hunched towards the ground, quietly transforming into Chuck, the caretaker. And he angled himself inward, moving as if he had a shell arching his stomach to his vertebrae. A difficult strategy. Chuck winked at the branch as he bent it back and confessed to me that he didn't like to trim trees unless they were dormant. He thought maybe they felt less when asleep. I likened this to shooting a bear in the winter. But his nurturing hand projected onto and as the path adjusted specifically for me, corrected my own broken insides, I could feel the blood thickening in my belly, taking its time to move, skirting a stain. Up until that path, I had been bleeding for four months and desperately needed parts of me and my own body to fall from the bridge into an anesthesiologist's dream. Dream. At some point during our journey, I thought Chuck and I could make love. 
I imagine myself curling up on the path inside of his arch and letting his long white hair with yellow ends fall over my neck unnoticed. I thought he could push my thigh around the way he adjusted the twigs, and through the rummaging we would find something asleep and shoot it before it woke to the changing color of his stringy hair. I even thought I could maybe have something like an orgasm on the ground in the dirt, like the first time was also outside, when he had told me something wet with a strong and curious tongue and my impulses drained me of a so-called dignity that only high school football players could cook up and eat raw. Real. Chuck and I had a short-lived romance. It lived in that one walk on that one path where silence got the better of my imaginary, where I believed his kindnesses could be more than a painting surface. It was soon after that the old creationist fundamentalism began to leak through his grateful deadhead cracks and worse, into public polls, or at least he didn't hesitate at all to tell me that putting all the pieces of a blender into a bag and shaking it up until it broke was proof that monkeys are not men. I agreed with the latter of the story's problem, but found I was no longer enchanted with his mother-nurture natural roots hairdo or plant-pity pleasantries. Past Freshly disenchanted, my 3D glasses fell off. Let me backpedal a minute. The night before my meeting with Rip, I had met a ghost in my bed, and it replaced my sight with terror, only to remind me later that when you're dead, you don't need glasses. That seeing 3D is actually boring, and one should try to get over the need to relieve a ghost of its visitation rights. The ghost was a reminder that I'm never alone, even when I'm not with my dicked-out ex who swaddled me with a helpless, obsessive need. The ghost seemed to be a prelude in order to remind me that Chuck probably would be right about the blender, and that I am certainly better off without a clear kind of orgasm or too many artistic, heroic insights. In line with all others, I found Chuck the Adjuster to be my newest encyclopedia for learning about absolute love and a creationist caretaking, the kind that moves me in my Midwestern fogged-out guilt. What I'd rather do is watch someone die for three days than spoon-feed them blended tuna sandwiches for the months leading up. Perhaps it's better to feed them when they're dormant. And off the Rip Van Winkle Bridge go five people a year, three new signs detailing the trip. The first one, a welcome. Life is worth living. Second, a hotline telephone for help. And third, a sign of goodbye, come again, don't forget how much you need me, a character, caretaker, the ghost, and the guilt to stay alive.
the future. <clears throat> All this serves up to remind me that his body will not be found or shot at for at least 20 years, one dead wife, and three unforgivable signs on a bridge. Space takes over time's betrayal. Simone de Beauvoir. I'm here, but it is not me. Samuel Beckett. There is salt on my tongue, but it is not me. Simone and Samuel accumulating particles, that is all, configured into this. A fog, a mist, hovering above the stacks like a wave of sound. The flight attendant's casual performance. He gives us the motions, practice from the beginning of his time, pulled by invisible hands. No, I had the que I had the question. I had the question set up. Um, Why are you asking us anyway? Well, because this is serious. But what I'm interested in is the speed of which um, sort of new technologies have kind of uh, created the ability to sort of literally travel in time. Right? So it used to take to go from, let's say, New York, New York to Los Angeles, like five hours. Well, months. Six hours. No months in terms of human travel. Now, now one can do that sure. in five hours, right? And so, what I'm interested in is what, from the perspective of a pilot, does that look like? Like, can you imagine, like, when you guys are in the cockpit and you're traveling at 500 and such miles an hour, do you take? Do you, are you looking out the window? Are you looking at your instruments? Is it both? Is it? Correct. And when do you decide to look out the window opposed to looking at your instruments? If there's clouds and you can't see anything below you, you're not really looking out the window too much. You know, if it's nighttime, there's not a whole lot to see. Right? Uh -huh. If it's daytime, we're going over you know, a beautiful part of the country. Look outside. You know, get a good idea where you are. You know, you just get a look at the, the beautiful geography. But, you're constantly always scanning outside. Yeah, you're looking outside, inside, outside, inside. It's, it's not like you're just focused on one thing. You're multitasking. You know, there's your instruments you have. The flight attendants in the back, you have people in the back and stuff going on. So it isn't like you just glare out outside. You don't glare out at the instruments. I mean, you have multitasking. When um, when you're trying to, do you use the window to as a as a as a point of reference to navigate as well, or is it usually from the instruments that you're navigating? Like, how do you know where you are? You navigate from your instruments. I mean, you, you can look out the window and you can see a city below you. You know, and uh, which now we're not allowed to even tell people what city we're over, as you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, do you know the pilot, you know the term pilot, do you know where it stems? Okay. Yeah. It, it's it actually, it's Greek and it, and it comes, yeah, it's, it comes from, um, it means, uh, the blade of a, of an oar. So it was the term used for the oar to kind of navigate through oceans. Um, 
I mean, I don't know if it's a question, but I just think it's interesting that like that that what pilot comes from is kind of the, the sea or the ocean, and sort of like so you're in this space that you navigate, or like you're you're kind of nowhere. Really, you're navigating. You, you you have to kind of figure out your way, or or I guess I'm just trying to understand like how do you know where you are when you're in that space of kind of you, you have all the instruments to navigate right. and you pinpoint your position. You've got GPS now tells us exactly where we are. You know we have uh, movable maps that shows us where we are. Do you guys know Joe Kit- Kittinger? Joe. Joe Kittinger. Yeah, I know Joe. What did he say? <laughs> he didn't say anything. But he said when, I don't know if you know Joe Kittinger, he was the one man, he's like the fastest man alive without a plane. So he was the man back in the 1960s that worked for like the, the military and they were doing test uh, uh, jumps from space. So he actually literally jumped, yeah, from like, I think it was 170 or 207,000 feet in the air. So he's the only person that's been able to go at the speed of sound uh, without an instrument. Right? Really? Yeah. He's how, incredible. How, how high? 207,000. I think it was 207,000 or 100. It was a balloon. You can totally look him up. Space. Yeah. He was. No, he was I at the say maybe 107,000. Maybe, maybe it's 100. No, but he was. Look him up. He was at the edge of space. What's his name again? Joe Kittinger. Joe Kittinger. All right. He's well known. I mean, you can look him up. Guys, thanks for, I'm, thanks for entertaining this. I'm serious, man. You guys were great sports. All right. Dark horse on the horizon. The atmosphere hangs in languid colors to be described. The magnetic circles of light individual species proliferate in the dense purple. A double appears liberated from metallic spheres. My remedy for modern loneliness is invisible, odorless, and pain-free. You need nothing but a quiet place and a receptive mind and can traverse reality, astral projection, mind-bending, without the thought of rats in cages, high on LSD, eating electrically shocked cheese. Locate your proximity to your collective unconscious and you're halfway there. Hallucinations, for lack of a better word, and regret inform my trajectory into the unknown. The inspiration, my dad. I always wished I knew him better, but found it next to impossible to get close to him. Of course, we had our moments together. I can recall scattered incidents as a child in which he'd take me hunting or fishing. My memory hosts a series of snapshots of us together, tracking animals in snow up to my waist, scaling fish, skinning a deer. There wasn't ever much talking. It was all about the task at hand, the bonding over the mundane. When we were in the silence of the woods, it was like he could finally relax and just be. Regret like this has a way of creeping up on you when you least expect it, though. Those clandestine moments with Dad are everywhere, now that I'm far away from home and have grown older and more aware of his absence in my life. This past month alone, I've seen him all over the city, riding a crowded bus, on the subway, crossing the street. It's like a scene in a movie 
where time slows and there is no sound but a very slow heartbeat. Could these recent encounters with my dad be him actually visiting me? Maybe they are forms of out-of-body experiences or astral projections. According to medieval, classical, and esoteric philosophies, when the astral body leaves the physical self, it travels across an astral plane. It is believed that we cross over these planes both during birth and death. The planes are inhabited by angels, spirits, and various other immaterial beings. Occult teachings indicate that we are able to access these planes whenever we meditate, have an out-of-body experience, astrally project, have a near-death experience, and so forth. Basically, any time we achieve this higher level of consciousness. One could accidentally traverse the astral planes upon falling asleep or having sex. You never know. So what if my own astral body has been separating from my physical self, traipsing around in netherworld Manhattan, where I keep running into my dad, even though I have yet to experience his presence here in this physical realm known as reality? All of this reminds me of that feeling of lucid dreaming, or in other words, self-awareness while dreaming. You know, you're asleep on a bed that looks like your own, but it's not. The sun is pouring through the slots in the blinds, but it's not washing over your body and working its way down into the crevices of your heavy eyelids. Because, in fact, you aren't on your bed. Instead, you realize, you're hovering above it, observing yourself from a bird's eye view. And that isn't your normal alarm clock, either. It's a giant one, with enormous iron hands that's about to go off in two seconds. I want to actualize this feeling, to make it my constant companion. My answer lies in the teachings of Robert Monroe, famous for popularizing the phrase, out of body. Heating Monroe's six-step technique, I find a quiet place in the apartment in which I will be undisturbed. I make sure to wear loose-fitting clothing. I pull the shades and lie down on the bed. Step one. Relax. Practice deep breathing. Inhale. Exhale. I focus on where I want to travel. The thought of an open field with tall grasses comes to mind. It's the beginning of autumn and there's no one else around. There is a large black dog barking in the distance, running near to where I'm lying. Step two. Allow myself to enter a state bordering on sleep. I visualize my purse hanging in the air. When other objects enter my mind, that's how I know I've entered the correct state. Passively, I allow the other objects to shuffle through my thoughts. My blue earrings, my hairbrush, and my purse float and whirl in a spiral above my head. Step three, observe the field of vision itself. Clear my mind of everything. I am now looking at nothing but blackness. I make out a tiny light pattern in the left-hand corner of the void. I am so calm. My own thoughts move through the air like tangible objects. Step four, 
allow myself to feel any physical sensations moving through my body. Attempt to guide these sensations from head to toe. Step five, focus on the idea of leaving my physical body. Don't let my mind wander. This is imperative. I explore the sensation by releasing a hand or foot from my second body. I extend a limb until it comes in contact with a familiar object. It is my hairbrush. I attempt to put my arm through the brush. Step six, dissociate from the body. Lift out of the body. I focus on getting lighter and lighter. I float upwards. My breathing has slowed. The lights from the outside street lamps are gently flickering beyond my closed eyelids. I feel a strange wave of energy course through my body. From my head to my feet, there is blackness. Then, in the corner of the room, slumped in a chair, I see a middle-aged man, white hair sticking out from under his gray felt baseball cap, a faint grin on his lips. The Chinese New Year in the animal kingdom. Clouds of dark smoke waited in the air, anticipating a terrible boom. The noise began robustly, but ended indistinctly. The outcry did not emerge from the stormy sky, but instead from a dragon at the top of a mountain, calling out for her family. Slowly they reunited, but without the liveliness they once had. The previous year produced many obstacles and challenges for the dragons, and they have not yet recovered. Once gathered, they flew away together, retreating from harsh conditions to recuperate, believed to be together again. Their golden flames lit up the gray sky. The jungle begins after the mountains have disappeared on the horizon. As the winter solstice fades in the darkness, a family of tigers grows with the addition of a new cub. The tiger is named Hu, and 2010 is his year, dedicated to his triumph in the animal kingdom. The optimistic spirit of the beginning of a new year suits the confident and precocious tiger. His brightly contrasting stripes characterize the yin and yang forces in every tiger's personality. 2010 is the year of the yin tiger, the dark, cold side of every being. Hu leaves his family quickly, eagerly anticipating the adventures that await him as he explores the rest of his kingdom. His journey begins far from the dragons, but he is still startled by their bright trail of fire in the clouds. Running through the fields with his gaze still on the menacing sky, who failed to notice the snake crossing his path? The snake, whose intuitive nature allows him to predict the tiger's every move, is able to slither around the tiger's paw wrapping around his leg completely, although this is still not enough to stop the tiger in his tracks. Without losing speed, Hu drags the snake down the road much further than the snake had prepared to go. 
When Hu finally shakes him off, the lonely snake finds solace in his dormant brown and green friends, the other snakes. The snakes retreat this year. Continuing to run further into the fields, Hu eventually wanders into deep fields of grass and pasture. Hu's first encounter is with a horse. Surrounded by his family, this horse is a winner, crowned with a wreath of roses. The group of horses far outnumber the tiger, but the encounter is friendly. As both the horse and the tiger can often be mercurial and hot-tempered, they respect each other's strength at a distance. Although seemingly from two different animal kingdoms, the horse and the tiger can easily be allies. The horse plans to make his mental and physical health a priority in order to have another winning year ahead of him. Trailing the horse, the dog looks for his own pack while protecting the horse from other animals. As the horse joins his family, the dog is ready to do the same. The dog is the most loyal of all animals, a great friend more valuable than diamonds, and he will be rewarded with a fortunate year. The trail in the grass leads to a farm where Hu confronts more animals that he would not expect to meet in the jungle. Typical of a tiger's adventurous nature, Hu looks to make friends everywhere he goes. As he nears a barn, a rat crosses his path. The rat walks with her head down, exhausted by the previous year. The difficulties of the recent past have weighed heavily on the rat, and she plans to improve her health and spirit by traveling in the near future. The rat's restorative excursions are well-deserved. Nearby, the tiger watches a clan of gray and white rabbits hop through the grass before quickly hiding again. The year of the tiger brings a new home for the rabbit, but the rabbit knows that it must act quickly in order to find the best home while so much of the world is in transition. The last moments of darkness introduce the rooster, although it is not Hu's friendliest welcome. Known as a homebody, the rooster enjoys giving advice, especially when it is not requested. Although it is the rooster's way of protecting his family, his advice is not always welcome. The rooster warns the tiger against taking any unnecessary risks. His bright yellow and orange feathers and citrine eyes give the rooster a grand presence, expressing his extravagant nature. The new year is not the most promising for the rooster, but if he follows his own advice and maintains his focus and avoids risk, he will be able to end the year much wiser, though weather, than how he started it. Moving past the barn, who hears the pigs squeal, keeping each other company? Pigs are very social and idealistic. Although they always have luck on their side, they are preparing for a modest year. 2010 is a year for the pig to gather strength and resources for the future, instead of trying to lead the pack. Venturing past the barn, past the pasture, past the fields, the lone tiger carries on. His reign over the animal kingdom is not without its drawbacks, as his journey leads him further into the isolating climate of distant snowy fields. The ox is most comfortable in the snow, gathering arctic flowers. Though water is his element, he has adjusted to ice. He decides to hibernate for the year, giving himself time and energy to plan out his successes for the near future. Leaving the Arctic weather, who meets a goat, who is also at home in the ice and snow? Memories of green fields and sunshine propel the goat to continue climbing steep hills. 
Though extraordinarily patient, the goat's will is tested with the constant challenges he has been presented. Conquering frustrations will prove to make the upcoming year a most rewarding one for the goats. Whose long journey does not end in the snow? Instead, he must continue to travel alone until he returns to the home most familiar to him, the jungle. He retraces his path until he re-enters the jungle, where he is greeted by a monkey. The monkey swings directly in front of the tiger, undeterred by the tiger's supposed dominance over the kingdom. The tiger and the monkey both can be very stubborn animals. The tiger reaches for the monkey, who narrowly escapes, but loses his balance and falls into a patch of violet. Although the monkey has a prosperous and energetic year to look forward to, he does not share the same enthusiasm for the tiger's year. He warns him of imminent danger, but who continues to fly through the jungle? Who finally reaches his family of tigers? Just as the lion is the king of the jungle in Western tradition, the tiger holds the same place in the Eastern imagination. Although wary of reigning over a kingdom of animals and all of the other signs, who knows that tigers are the best company? Upbeat, entertaining, and loyal, the tiger basks in the sunlight of a new year. Part 2. Dictionary of Words and Phrases, 1941. Entry on Space in General. 181. Definite Space. Region. Sphere. Sphere of Influence. Corridor. Ground. Solid. Area. Realm. Hemisphere. Quarter. District. Beat. Orb. Circuit. Circle. Pale. End. Limit department, domain, tract, territory, terrain, country, canton, county, shear, province, arrondissement, diocese, parish, township, borough, constituency, commune, ward, teething, bailwick, empire, kingdom, republic, dominion, colony, state, island, enclave, field, court, street, Climb, climate, zone, meridian, latitude, territorial, local, parochial, provincial, insular, limited space, place, lieu, spot, point, dot, nick, nook, and corner, hall, receptacle, compartment, premises, precinct, station, confined, area, court, yard, courtyard, quadrangle, square, compound, locality, Ins and outs, every hole and corner, somewhere, in some place, wherever it may be, here and there, in various places.
Hmm.